It's interesting to me that Fad mentioned, and I believe he was absolutely right, that if God just gave us five steps to, uh, to good parenting or to raising godly children, that we would end up with a whole lot of legalism. And of course, any of us who have been parents know that parenting is just not that easy. It requires a degree of wisdom and finesse and a ton of patience Uh, But what we see here, in fact, as we return after about a two-month break to the book of Matthew, is Jesus kind of undoing those exact rules, those types of rules that had been put in place by the Pharisees and and the the scribes. And so we're here at the end of Matthew chapter 5, and it's the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is preaching to this large crowd, and no doubt what we have here is an abbreviated version of the Sermon on the Mount. And we've been looking at these six antitheses, these these statements where Jesus challenges a twisted interpretation of Scripture and corrects it with a right interpretation of Scripture. And we've seen four. We're going to look at five this week. I had really told myself, you can do five and six this week, and I just cannot. There is so much here that I felt it would be overwhelming to try and cover both of these at one time. But we saw first that that all one has to do to be guilty of murder is to hate, that all one has to do to be guilty of adultery is lust, that divorce is not acceptable to God except under certain circumstances. Yes, there is grace there for those who have, who have suffered the effects of that, but they had twisted into this idea that a man could divorce his wife for any reason as long as he gave her a certificate of divorce, and Jesus says, No, except in the case of unfaithfulness, uh, you cannot do that. And fourth, we we saw that we must be honest. There is no, uh, to to put it simply, no no spiritual finger crossing. You know, when you're kids and you're in elementary school and you, you make a promise and then later you go back on it because, oh, I have my fingers crossed when I make that promise. Well, if you swear by the temple, that's not enough. But if you swear by the gold of the temple, then you're bound by it. And, and the Pharisees has created all of these rules to, to, to so, so-called finger cross as they made promises and then go back on those promises. Here, Jesus corrects our idea of vengeance. He says in this typical pattern that we've seen, you've heard it said, but I say, you have heard it said, and then he quotes scripture, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I think in many ways, things then were very similar to the way they are now. I want to be really careful how I present this, but we really see in our world today That forgiveness is often seen as weakness. Rather than forgiving, we fire. Rather than reconciling, we reject. Some today even suggest that forgiveness is a form of self-loathing and that true strength is often seen in those who can exert the most force. We see this in terms of riots. We see this in terms of of lawsuits. 
And the reason I want to get very careful here is because I believe Scripture, as we read this morning in Isaiah, requires us to stand up for victims and the victimized. But there is a right way and a wrong way to do that. We've seen recently that in light of, of deaths of some people, particularly if they die at the hands of police, if I could get on my soapbox for a minute, can we just not see that the natural outcome of defunding police is poorly trained police officers? I mean, but what happens when these poorly trained, defunded officers wrongfully kill someone? Do we seek justice in terms of legal uh, ramifications if they are dismissed from their jobs and prosecuted and even imprisoned or punished for their crimes? Is that enough? No, it's not enough. We have to burn down cities. And in fact, without naming names because I don't want to wade too deeply in this, we see that even, as, even recently in the last couple of years, families who have offered forgiveness in situations like that have, have been persecuted in the same way as the people who committed those crimes. Forgiveness is often seen as weakness and self-loathing. Jesus is... What we do, really, is try to overpower those who are called to preserve justice in those situations. And what Jesus is trying to show us here is that, that this is not true strength. And I think as we look at these sixth antitheses, this may be one of the ones that assaults us most as American evangelicals. See, as Americans... Uh, we've been given certain inalienable rights, the right to free speech, the right to bear arms, the right to be considered innocent until proven guilty, the right to not have your property searched without cause, and to not have your property taken without, uh, without compensation, to not incriminate ourselves. We even make up rights like the right to privacy uh, this so-called right to privacy in the Constitution, which is listed nowhere in the Constitution, is the grounds upon which abortion was legalized in the United States. And when our rights are infringed, we idolize. We idolize those who result, revolt and stand up for their rights no matter who they offend. Now, let me be very clear. I'm not saying it's wrong to stand up for your rights or the rights of others. And I don't think that's what Jesus is saying either, and we'll get to that here in a minute. But I think what, what, what Jesus is telling us is that true strength oftentimes comes in different ways than we expect. One commentator said this, Inordinate concern for one's own rights comes from inordinate selfishness, and leads to inordinate lawlessness. When self-interest dominates, justice is replaced by vengeance. Impartial concern for justice becomes partial concern for personal revenge. Concern for protecting society becomes concern for protecting self-interest. Is this not what James talks about 
in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, when he says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Well, this passage we're looking at today gives us what is called, or has historically been called, the lex talionis. Lex talionis means law of retaliation. And again, Jesus quotes some scripture here, and, and the, uh, the consideration of these passages might be important. In fact, uh, turn with me to one of these passages. I'm going to get on a soapbox for a minute. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 21. Exodus chapter 21. Keep a finger there in Matthew chapter 5, but go with me to Exodus chapter 21, because Jesus quotes several places when he says, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Uh, He quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 19. This is uh, a verse that we're going to have to consider the context of later, but in Deuteronomy 19.21, he says, your eye shall not pity, it shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, and foot for foot. Leviticus 24 verses 19 and 20 says, if anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. And then we come to this interesting passage in Exodus 21 where Moses is at Sinai, and this is the very beginning of God's giving instructions there. And we see in verse 23 that it says, If there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. The interesting thing about this passage here in Exodus 21 is the specific context Jesus gives, or or rather God gives, to Moses at Sinai. Back it up to chapter, or verse 22. God says to Moses, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, that is, are born prematurely, but there is no harm, then the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, in other words, if two men are striving together and accidentally strike a pregnant woman, and she gives birth to a baby, and that baby is harmed, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. If you have ever heard it said that Scripture nowhere calls what is in the womb life, just just take somebody to Exodus 21. Because what we're told here in Exodus 21 is that what is found in the womb is life for life. And when life is lost from the womb, the life of the one who took that life is to be taken as well. Whether it's the unborn, which is life, or anybody, this was the commandment in in Israel, that there would be 
eye for eye and tooth for tooth. However, I think what's going on is that the the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 5 had taken this and applied it to any kind of personal vengeance. That when there is harm against you, it is within your rights to to take action on your own and you are to exact life for life, tooth for tooth, eye for eye. And I think that is what Jesus is fighting against here. He's fighting against personal vengeance. Deuteronomy and Leviticus and Exodus cannot be speaking about personal vengeance because Leviticus 19.18 says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And Deuteronomy 32.35 says, vengeance is mine and recompense. For the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom shall come swiftly. When we're told here that, that, we are, that there is to be eye for eye and tooth for tooth, hand for hand and foot for foot, Jesus is not, or, or rather, the scriptures are not talking in terms of personal vengeance, but in terms of legal recompense, legal recourse and action. And there's two really important purposes for these laws that are given to us. First is that this kind of punishment was was given so that people wouldn't commit crime. In fact, Deuteronomy 19.20, which we already saw Deuteronomy 19.21 says, you shall not pity, it shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. The immediate verse prior to that in Deuteronomy 19.20 says, and the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. One of the reasons that people were to be punished civilly, not personally, but the nation of Israel and every other nation for that matter, was to enact laws and impose penalties for breaking such laws is so that people would be afraid of breaking laws. We seem today to be... uh, in this ideology that if we create lesser and lesser punishments for laws, that it will result in better and better behavior. And the experiment isn't working. It's not working. But the opposite side of that coin, and equally as important, is so that the punishment would fit the crime. We don't want to under-punish for certain crimes in society, but we also don't want to over-punish. Punishment is not to be, as we say here in the U.S., cruel nor unusual. It is to be a consequence that fits the crime. And so we must be concerned that, one, our justice, justice system is severe enough to deter people from committing crimes, and on the other hand, is not so severe as to over-punish. Both of those would be equally problematic. But oftentimes today, as then, people think, tend to think it better to take matters into our own hands than to wait for God's given means of punishing sin. 
Now, Jesus cannot mean also by this passage that we are no longer to execute justice in society. There are some who have wrongly applied this passage to say, well, we should be pacifists and never go to war. There are some who have said we should no longer punish any crime as a result of this, but that clearly can't be what Jesus means because when we get to passages like Romans, we see there that we're specifically told that government bears the sword for the purpose of punishing evildoers. And Paul specifically there tells us if we don't want to be afraid of the government and its sword, well, there's a simple solution. Don't do evil things. This is often how it works in our houses, right? Or should work in our houses when our kids don't want the punishment for their behavior that deserves a consequence. And you can look at your children and say, if you don't want the consequence, the answer is simple. Don't commit the crime. And so Jesus can't mean that there's no longer to be punishment. And so we find here in this this in-between, Jesus is not saying we should be pacifists and and non-punishers. He's also not saying we should be over-punishers. The government still bears the sword. I think he's certainly telling us that we, or not telling us that we're supposed to be doormats. But the reality is, is that most of us are not government officials, judges, governors, etc. And so it is not our duty, apart from the, the proper legal course of action, to bring about vengeance or revenge on the actions of others. So how do we live this portion of Scripture out? How do we live this out in our individual lives? Well, that is what Jesus is going to show us in the remaining verses. And so that's what I want to look at today. Four principles for properly applying an eye for an eye. Four principles for properly applying an eye for an eye. Number one, in terms of honor. Number one, in terms of honor. Now, your outline there, I believe, says verse 38, and it should say verse 39. Look with, look with me, if you would, at, at what, we, what Jesus has said here. We're going to start at verse 38. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, now here is the proper application, because, again, remember that, that justice in those ways is for the government and not for individuals. So Jesus in verse 39 says, But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the cheek, turn to him the other also. A slap on the cheek in this culture would have probably been just about the greatest insult you could give to one's honor. This is not about fighting, it's not about self-defense, it's not about any of those things. If you wanted to, to publicly dishonor, humiliate, and shame somebody, you would slap them on the cheek. And this would be seen as a great offense to their honor and their dignity, even if it wasn't the most hurtful thing. It certainly would have been considered the most shameful thing. And everyone deserves to be treated with a certain level of dignity as people created in God's image. 
But I think any of us who have lived for any period of time would know that there will, and if you have not experienced this yet, I promise, there will be times where people assault that honor, where, where people treat you in an undignified uh, uh, manner, when they dishonor you in such a way and treat you at, at a level or a standard below what you believe you should be treated. And in those moments, how do you respond? Well, Jesus tells us that if someone slaps you on the right cheek, uh, turn, and I want to stop and talk about this word here, turn, because in each of these points, we find Jesus using the imperative mood in Greek, the, this, this mood of command. This is not a suggestion, and, and part of it is as Jesus speaks in this passage, there is great urgency. If someone slaps you on the cheek, if someone assaults your dignity or your honor, quickly give him the other cheek so that he might do it again. We're to quickly offer another opportunity for somebody to dishonor us. That might, may seem foreign to many of us, but if we return not too far back to, uh, to Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, Jesus reminds us that blessed, the word there is makarios, it's happy, happy are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, when someone assaults your honor or dignity needlessly, quickly give them an opportunity for another. Why? Because number one, as far as they're concerned, God will deal with that. And as far as you're concerned, as long as your behavior was not such leading up to said slap that you deserved it, your reward in heaven will be great. You want to dishonor me because I've, I'm a believer or because of whatever else it may be? Go right ahead. I will wait on God's timing to take care of you, and I will trust that he can reward me. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 12, Paul says, And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. In fact, there may be no greater example of this than Jesus and the way he responded to the crucifixion and everything that led up to it. When he's arrested falsely, betrayed by Judas, he doesn't lash out. When, a, when a, one of the official's servants gets his ear cut, cut off, Jesus puts it back. He goes to trial three times before the Sanhedrin, Caiaphas, uh, Annas Caiaphas, or maybe it's Annas Caiaphas, Annas, I'm forgetting in this moment right here. And then he's handed over to Pilate, who sends him to Herod, who sends him back to Pilate. And through all this, Jesus is quiet. He doesn't revile. He doesn't persecute. The, the, uh, the soldiers beat him and mock him. They, they twist a crown of thorns and put it on his head 
continue to beat him. They spit on his face. They put a rod in his hand like a scepter. Then they take it from him and beat him with it. Then they make him carry his cross up a hill, crucify him on it. Both thieves crucified next to him mock him. One of those thieves at one point changes his mind and Jesus doesn't look at him and say, too late, buddy, you've mocked me enough. He says, no, today you'll see me in paradise. The Roman centurion who put him on the cross at the death of Jesus says, truly this was the Son of God. We'll probably see that guy in heaven. Jesus forgave the very guy who put him on the cross. He endures the mocking on the cross. Save yourself. You said that, that, that God could send a legion of angels to rescue you. Come on, get yourself down from there. And he doesn't, though he could. He stays there in order to pay the penalty for our sin. There could be no more humiliating treatment in Rome than that. And Jesus does not revolt He doesn't revile. He doesn't persecute. He simply endures and blesses, knowing that certainly his reward will be great as well. How do you respond when people assault your honor? Secondly, Jesus mentions our security. It's not just honor that people assault. Sometimes it's our security. Verse 40 If anyone would sue you, notice this is not if anyone would steal from you. This is if anyone would sue you. If anyone has a legitimate claim against you, you you have been sued for some reason and they have uh, prevailed. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him take your cloak as well. The tunic was an undergarment that was very worn very closely to one's skin, and the cloak was an outer garment that served as a coat or a blanket. And, and, and it's not like today. It's not like you, you can in my house and go and pick out one of four or five coats that you may have hanging up. In fact, in Exodus chapter 22, 26 and, verses 26 and 27, the commandment is that if you, if you loan money to somebody, like say for a home loan or a business loan, and you as security take their cloak, because it's the only one they would have, Exodus 22 requires that you give it back before nightfall. So even as a lender, if you took someone's cloak for security, you had to give it back before it was dark so that they would not freeze at night. So the idea here is that of a legitimate lawsuit. And and by the way, because of the commandment there in Exodus, uh, though someone, uh, debts that could not be paid in cash were often paid in clothing, but the one thing the court could not do was impose upon you the fine of giving you or giving them your cloak. And so what Jesus is saying here is if somebody sues you and they demand that that be paid back in terms of clothing and they say, well, you, you stole this from me, you took this from me, you broke this business deal, who knows what it is, and I've sued you and I've won and you owe me your tunic, rather than just giving him your tunic, give him the cloak that he could not demand as well and that the court could not impose. 
Jesus is saying that if you have wronged someone, you should go the extra mile in making things right. Similarly, in 1 Corinthians 6, 7, Paul says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. In other words, in, within Christian circles, a lawsuit automatically means failure. You can explore 1 Corinthians 6 to understand that. Paul says there, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Better to be defrauded than to sue someone inside the body of Christ. When it comes to making things right, and even in terms of our own security, we should be willing to go the extra mile in terms of making things right. And going the extra mile brings us to our next point, and maybe the one that's going to be hard for some of us Americans to swallow is that of liberty. We should quickly surrender our honor to others. We should quickly surrender our security to others. And verse 41 teaches us that we should quickly surrender our liberty to others. Look with me at verse 41. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. This came from a law. Now remember at the time that Jesus is teaching this, and even at the time Matthew is writing this, uh, Rome is in control of Israel. And there was a law in Rome for the relief of Roman soldiers that they could force anyone at any point in time to carry their pack for up to one Roman mile, one million. It started out uh, being measured by about a thousand paces. The distance is just slightly shorter than what we would consider a mile today. And at any point in time, a Roman soldier could grab you and say, here's my gear you're going to carry it one mile for me. The pack was heavy and uncomfortable, and the task was difficult and certainly inconvenient. But Jesus says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, you should go with him too. We should go the extra mile in giving up our liberties for the good of others. I want to, before we delve any further into this, I just want to say that, that it's noteworthy that God's design is for liberty. God's design is for liberty. There was great freedom for Adam and Eve in the garden. Romans is, is clear that, uh, that it is for freedom that we have been set free. And as we read in Micah and other passages like Isaiah 58 that we read this morning, we see that God's people should stand up for liberty when people's liberty is imposed. But Jesus here is not talking about human rights. He's talking about personal demands. And the Apostle Paul addresses this both in Romans 14 and in 1 Corinthians 8 and 9. There's some interesting principles out of there, and for the sake of time, we're not going to look at them. I would encourage you to spend some time in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. But, but there's some things we should note. Number one, in both passages, Paul assumes that the person with greater liberty is more mature. Paul assumes that the person who has greater, and, and, and in both cases, there's several things offered, but, but particularly the, uh, the, the, 
the context in Romans 14, even also to some degree in 1 Corinthians, is that of meat sacrificed to idols. And so Paul says, look, if your conscience is clear to buy meat in the market that had been sacrificed before an idol, before a false god, buy that meat, enjoy your steak, happy Super Bowl Sunday. But what happens when there's somebody whose conscience says that meat was sacrificed before an idol? And and I used to worship that idol. And that idol, I can't have anything to do with it. I can't eat meat sacrificed to that idol. Paul says the person with the greater liberty, with the clearer conscience, is more mature. In fact, he goes on in Romans to say that nothing in itself is unclean. And I would argue... In fact, I'll tell you, it was kind of a funny story. I was reading Romans one time. I read that statement from Paul, nothing in itself is unclean. And the first thought that went through my head is, that's not true. The second thought that went through my head is, I'm holding my Bible. It's got to be true. So then I thought, started thinking to myself, well, can I think of anything that is inherently evil? And I could not. And you cannot either. We can think of lots of things that are abused for evil purposes. The abuse of anything can be evil. The abuse of drugs can be evil. I took drugs this morning. Two medications for my heart, and I take one little, well, two little pills each day. It's not inherently evil. The abuse of it could be evil. Sex is not inherently evil. The abuse of it is inherently evil. To to maybe bring this around to what Jesus is talking about, including Paul's language in Romans, a sword isn't inherently evil when a government exercises it properly, but improperly exercised by us or by a government, it is evil. There's nothing that is inherently evil, and Paul assumes that that it is the more mature person, the person who has greater freedoms... Who, who is more mature. But then he also assumes that that person who is more mature will quickly and readily give up their freedom for the conscience of others. Can I just be really transparent for a moment and say that there is maybe no place I was more disappointed in this and despite my own thoughts of who would be more mature or less mature in the situation, I think maybe we've seen no place recently where immaturity like Paul is speaking of here displayed more clearly than in the wearing of masks. Whether it's those who demand that others wear them or those who demand that they not, we saw very quickly that Christians were far more likely to demand their liberties than to surrender them for the sake of others. There is an immaturity in not having liberty. There is also immaturity in demanding it. And again, I can think of no greater example than Christ. 
Because you and I, no matter what happens politically in our world or economically in our world, we will never give up as many rights, things that are due to us, as Jesus did when he stepped out of heaven and became one of us to live as a human subject to fallen humanity and die on a cross in our place. None of us will ever give up as much liberty as Jesus did to set us free. And in those moments where we could demand our liberty, are our liberties worth destroying our testimony? Are our liberties worth destroying our testimony to the world around us? And Jesus encourages us, if anyone forces you to go one mile, if anyone takes your liberty and says, it is my right that you carry my stuff and my gear one mile, that you go the extra mile. That's where this term, that phrase in our language has come from. And so we give up honor, we give up security, we give up liberty, and finally we give up our possessions. We give up our possessions. In verse 41, Jesus says, or verse 42, I'm sorry, he says, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Maybe there is nothing more telling of the fallenness of humanity than in our greed and selfishness. And what Jesus calls us to here is generosity. This isn't, by the way, a call to give in to the petty whims of people. Nor is it a call to be enabling to people. But it is a call to generosity. It is a call to lend and to give up what we have for others who are in need. John MacArthur in his sermon on this text points out how, how clearly this can be seen in so many places in Scripture. From Abraham giving the best to Lot. It can be seen in Joseph forgiving his brothers. It can be seen in David not being willing to take Saul's life. In Elisha feeding the Assyrian army. And in Stephen praying for those who stoned him to death. Ultimately, in Jesus giving up the comforts of heaven and coming to this earth to live as a human. And not just to experience humanity. Jesus didn't experience garden humanity. He was sinless. But he subjected himself to the rules and limitations and effects and consequences, even death, of sinful humanity. He gave up all he had in heaven and on earth to come be a poor, homeless, persecuted teacher, all to redeem us. Will you, will I give up honor, give up security, give up liberty? Give up our possessions to be like Jesus? To make sure our witness in the world and to those in the church is right? You know what this ultimately requires of us, by the way? See, the, the, the reality is, is we're never going to get to this place just by looking at our liberties and looking at our possessions and looking at our honor. The more we look at our possessions or our security, the more we're going to be obsessed with those things. The more we look at our liberty, the more we're going to demand it. The more we obsess about our honor, the more we're going to think that people should 
should be careful with our honor. How do we get to a place where we're willing to give up these things for the glory of God and for the good of others? It comes in being satisfied in Christ. It comes by looking to Jesus Christ and the eternity that we have with him and saying, you're enough. You're enough. I don't need anything else to be happy. If my liberty is stripped away, if my possessions are stripped away, if my honor is stripped away, all of that is okay because Jesus, you are enough. When we start thinking that way, when we start looking at him, when we start obsessing about him and being satisfied in him and glorying in him and who he is and what he has done for us, then all those things fade away. They become less and less and less important. Again, it does not mean we don't stand up for victims and the victimized. It doesn't mean that we, we, we don't seek to protect the rights of, of people and the freedoms of people. It simply means that, that we do those in appropriate legal fashions. And we don't take revenge and vengeance into our own hands. And ultimately, if we come to the place, whether it be uh, because some other government has taken over or because America is just no longer the place it once was and all of those are removed from us, or whether it's believers in the end times who don't take the mark of the beast and can't buy and sell or do anything, We have to remind ourselves that every government, Romans 13, is where it is because God has either put it there or allowed it to be there. And he's always working out his his purposes. And so if America comes to the place where all of these are threatened, where your honor is threatened and your liberty is threatened and your security is threatened and your possessions are threatened, in that day will you find Jesus to be enough. Really, if he's not enough for you today, he probably won't be enough for you in that day either. Lord, we declare that you are enough, that knowing you is enough, that being in your presence and to be rewarded by you is enough. May we find you worthy of laying down our liberties and our possessions and even our lives, if that's what you call us to. To be like you, to be a witness and a testimony to the world around us, and to do good for others. And we ask that you would glorify yourself in it, in Jesus' name. Amen.